Hello and welcome to Direct Relief News. I'm your host, Emery Garafanelli. On this episode of the podcast, we speak with Oxnard Fire Chief Alexander Hamilton, who was deployed to provide mental health services in the wake of the Surfside condo collapse. The focus of the trip was on first responders and helping them cope with the devastation they face day in and day out. Hamilton talks about his experience on the ground and how those responding were affected. Can you describe what it was like when you first touched down and arrived on the scene there in in Florida? Yeah, um, so we we arrived uh, on on a Monday. Uh, so that the uh, if you recall, they they had that section of the building that was still standing. Um, they they'd actually just uh, demolished that section of the building Sunday night. We got in there Monday morning, um, and so uh, there was actually they because of the the the, un, the instability of that part of the building and and they there was a there was a whole pile uh, where there were a bunch of bedrooms that they couldn't search and so as soon as they had collapsed that other section they immediately were able to um, to search in an area that previously not been able to get get access to so there was actually a ton of activity going on when we first arrived um, and so they actually in, within those first I want to say first 24 or 36 hours after taking down that other section, um, they they had already delayed three or four floors, um, and it's a it's a 12 story building. So they they actually were able to work uh, much more quickly with with the safety of that other structure being down. So it was there was a lot of activity going on, but also a lot of you know as as crews were coming off the pile because um, they'd, they'd work for an hour on to an hour off, kind of. It wasn't, strictly it wasn't that, but, but they, w- they would take breaks fairly frequently. Um, and so the first crew I interacted with, they had just come off the pile after recovering a family of four that were found together. And so some pretty, um, um, pretty tough situations for the, for the, uh, the, you know, the search and rescue teams. So can you describe the services that you were providing? Were they group sessions? Were these one-on-one counseling sessions? So it, this situation is it was really unique for me in my experience because the, the vast majority of the time when, when I'm providing uh, behavioral health support or peer support um, to first responders, it's after an, an incident has terminated essentially you know it's it, it's sort of after the fact and we go in there and we help to start um help folks start processing their experiences in this case though they were still very much in the middle of their incident um you know obviously at, at that point there wasn't there wasn't lives to be saved but certainly there was a lot of work still to be done to bring closure to the families so it was a bit of an unusual response for us um because we're not you know that they really can't stop to start processing their experiences because they know they've got to go back and keep working. So it was, it was as much as anything, just um, ensuring they, they knew that there was support there. There were times where, where we would have, there were people that would come off that, that were, were feeling overwhelmed. And so we would go and have a little one-on-one session. Um, but more often than not, it was groups of five or six and, and sort of, relatively brief conversations, some of which you'd get into some of their experience, but a lot of times it was actually a chance for them to check out, you know, and, and so they'd want to know how we load hose on our fire engines in California, for example, versus the way they do it. And so we had these little sort of small talk conversations as well, but then some of it too was was understanding some of their needs um, going through this experience. You know, Florida, it's incredibly hot. It's incredibly 
incredibly humid. Um, so, you know, having good quality wool socks was something that they, they needed. You know, so it's just sort of these little comfort things that we're able to pick up on and do something about. And so um, neck gaiters, uh, wool and tactical socks. I didn't know, even know tactical socks were a thing, but I discovered that when I was out in Florida. Um, but also one of, the, one of the things we found early on was, um, you know, these crews, it was the beginning of this, um, like it was day 13, I think, after the collapse when we got there, um, day 12 maybe. But it, um, so these crews hadn't been near their families in that time. And so uh, one of their requests was, was better um, wireless uh, coverage or, um, you know, wireless internet so they could FaceTime with family members and just sort of have that check-in. So, so there's little comfort things that we're able to provide while also being there to, um, to give them support if they needed that support. So I can only imagine how, you know, physically and emotionally demanding this response was trying to find victims of the collapse. So did any of them share, um, you know, their, their thoughts on that experience, how that affected them? Yeah, there were, there were little, little pieces um, uh, of stories that would come out. And, and certainly the longer the search went on, um, you know, obviously decomposition is happening quite rapidly in those, in those conditions. Um, and so the, the state of the bodies as they were finding them, if they hadn't been impacted by, by the collapse itself, there were some that were impacted by fire as well because there were some fires in some of the void spaces. Um, but, but then ultimately um, uh, the, the victims that were, were found are relatively intact. Obviously it had fairly advanced decomposition. So I think that was one of the hardest things, um, you know, and, and you, you could smell it when you're out there. Um, you know, it, it was really strong. So th that was pretty impactful for a lot of them um, is, is sort of that struggle, doing their very best to obviously bring closer to these families and, and also respecting these victims um, as they're recovering them. And so, but I think it's, you know, one, one guy said it best to me, um, one of the crew members that, that recovered that family of four, he's like, I, I prefer to save people, you know, not do this. Um, he's like, but I know we need to do this, but I don't like it kind of, you know, was, was sort of the sentiment. Um, so they, they knew it needed to be done, but, but it, it was really difficult, um, difficult circumstances. So you said that in the, in the initial phases of this response, most of their needs were, you know, wanting to speak with their family. They had some um, kind of practical needs like wool socks. Do you anticipate that the recovery for these first responders is going to be more long term and that there's going to be other sort of mental health issues that they need to deal with later on? Uh, without a doubt, um, there, there absolutely is. And, and it was interesting, the longer that we were there, uh, when we first got there, there was a lot of, of behavioral health support at the site, particularly during the day, clinicians, chaplains, people with therapy dogs and that kind of thing. Not a lot of them, though, had um, cultural competency in, in either dealing with, with search and rescue teams or dealing with, with firefighters. Um, and so within a day or two of us being um, at the site and on the ground, we were all wearing these yellow lanyards to, to identify ourselves very clearly. Um, people started gravitating towards those, those yellow lanyards. Um, and so, and so we, we were able to get to more people. We, um, we really quickly developed that, you know, we had their trust to some level. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely anticipate that there's going to be some long-term um, issues for, for all of those responders to work through. Uh, and that, that was one of the things that we were starting to, to work on is a plan for when everyone's going home because it's, it's not only the two Florida-based FEMA teams that were there, but there was also five out-of-state FEMA teams that were there. So, um, and so we were, we were looking to each of those home states and how they were going to um, manage that, that behavioural health component once these teams return. Uh, and certainly I, I had very long and in-depth conversations with members from um, uh, a couple from the Indiana state team, from the Ohio team, and then uh, New Jersey as well, uh, and Pennsylvania. Pretty much everyone but the New York team, I think I had some amount of interaction with um, and, and starting to plan for their, their return back to their home states. So as a fire chief, you've been involved in addressing the mental health needs of first responders for a while now. Um, so what got you into the work and, and why did you identify mental health as a, as a need among your colleagues? You know, it's, uh, that, that question comes up a little bit and, and um, all of my, uh, my peer support colleagues from around the country, um, everyone has a, has a different story, whether it was a, an issue that they, they faced personally, uh, a, lot of, a lot of us got into it um, that way, or, or some adversity that, that people were able to work through. Ultimately for me, it was a call that'll actually be, it'll be 10 years ago this Thanksgiving um, that I, I went on and it was, it was a little boy um, that had catastrophic injuries after um, after being hit by a car, and and it, similar age to my own child uh, at the time, and and so it it was a uh, a really difficult scene, um, and and we were there for a long time, and and so um, you know a, a lot of things went down. Ultimately, my response initially to that was was pretty myopic. Um, you know, I just sort of took care of myself and didn't really think about it. I was an engineer at the time, so I was a, I was a driver um, on the engine. Well, about eight months after that, the firefighter that was with me on that call, he came to me and he says, I'm just not coping with life anymore. Um, and so that was kind of my uh-oh moment where, you know, obviously I had I, I dealt with my issues and, and I and had gotten some help and, and you know, I, 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 I can still tell you everything about that call to this day, um, but... He, uh, at the time when he came to me and said he's not coping with life, we didn't have anything in place. And, and the only answer we really had, there was a, we had a big distrust of our um, employee assistance program, which is common, unfortunately. Um, all we had was to call the number on the back of your healthcare card uh, for mental health support. And if you've ever tried to do that, it's not a good way to get mental health support because the insurance company will give you a list of like 12,000 providers in your area the vast majority of whom are not taking new clients, you know, and then um, then there's people that just won't call you back. And it, it's just, it's a really clunky way to get behavioral health support. Um, and so it was, that was the point where I, I, I realized that we needed to do things a lot differently and a lot better. And so that sort of took me down this road of, of uh, into peer support. And then obviously uh, suicide has become, um, when we started, suicide was just starting to become an issue in the fire service. Unfortunately, it's it's grown exponentially since we got involved. But that's where we started. I started um, into suicide intervention classes, suicide uh, awareness classes, and so that's a lot of the stuff that we're doing. And and now we're just starting on teaching a resiliency class to try and sort of build those those uh, coping skills early, 
um, so that hopefully we don't end up, um, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a bad, dark place. So that's, that's kind of how I got into it. I think that's a, a long way of explaining, my, uh, explaining myself. But. In your opinion, uh, you know, has climate change and just the, the increasing frequency and severity of, of natural disasters like wildfires uh, increased the need for mental health support among first responders? I think, yeah, climate change is one part of it, but I think our, our profession has changed pretty dramatically as well in the last 10 or 15 years. Why we're, we're doing a better job with, with behavioural health uh, um, services to our, to our responders. Um, the job has become infinitely more demanding. And so our, our members are exposed to a lot more violent incidents uh, they are exposed to a longer hours and, and these more gr- grueling sort of campaign fires that, that go on for, for weeks at a time. Uh, so it, it is absolutely having an impact. Um, and, and, you know, the, through COVID, um, the, you know, last season was, was a particularly bad fire season. But I think agencies all across, certainly all across California, and likely this is across the rest of the country, uh, everyone's short-staffed. Because we either had to pare back on training new firefighters, or you know, for a host of different reasons, and so so there has been people working incredibly long hours. I had I had people I think last September when the fires were at their worst, uh, some of my firefighters um, did twenty five days at the fire station in a month, and and that's so uh, that's a twenty four hour shift each time, and because of COVID they couldn't have their families coming to visit the stations. We had to be we had to be really careful about about keeping our workforce healthy. So really, really demanding uh, work. Um, and, you know, and, and, and our firefighters, they'll do it. Um, and they'll occasionally complain about it, but for the most part, they, they understand that this is the job and this is the mission. But also that needs to be acknowledged that that's an incredibly um, uh, heavy burden that they have to take on and that, that we need to be able to try and support them through. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can find Direct Relief News on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, I'm Amarika Raffanelli.